Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am really looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Jermaine Edwards, all the way from the UK. Jermaine, how are you doing? Doing real well. Thank you, Andy. So nice of you to stay awake this late. For we're recording the pre-recording this, and it's late into the evening in the UK. And Jermaine is founder of the Key Account Hack System, author of a book called Key Account Hack: Eight Steps to Creating Massive and Predictable Revenue Growth from Your Key Clients in Ninety Days. I always love big claims like that in titles. Jermaine, welcome to Accelerate. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Actually, sales doesn't sleep, Andy. So that's why I'm here at nine o'clock. Uh, sales doesn't sleep. That's a great way of putting it, right? So um, take a minute, introduce yourself, maybe tell us how you got your start in sales. Yeah, I think it started uh, kind of um, right uh, after university. I'd actually run a dance studio while studying in Germany. And um, a good friend of mine had introduced me to a uh, dance studio. No, I'm sorry, we can't let that just go by. You can't say <laughs> dance studio and I not ask you a question. So, what type of dance? Like a, uh, a dance was, instructional, yeah, like yeah ballroom it was, dancing. Uh, it was a mix of kind of uh, contemporary um, kind of hip hop and uh, and uh, expressionist dance. I, I didn't do the teaching specifically. What well, I did for a little while, but kind of faked it into a <laughs> faked it till I made it. Um, but that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. I, I saw a particular opportunity, partnered with a, a ballet dance school, and ended up uh, opening up my own studio there wow. and uh, paying my way for university. So, if, if we were to start a sales version of Dancing with the Stars, like they have here in the US, would you be on that show? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'd, I'd, I think I'd, I'd be very wary uh, <laughs> to where my, my old knees would, would take me. Um, but uh, if the money was right, who knows? Who knows, right? <laughs> if it's just about money. Okay, so you, you started a dance studio, you were managed a dance studio in Germany while you're studying. So then how'd that lead you to sales? Yeah, so um, I ended up going back to the States with uh, my wife and she ran a, um, a autism practice where she's consulting with a number of different um, families. I ended up taking up some of the direct selling with that and she asked me if, she, if, if I could help her find some more clients. And I said, well, I have no idea how to go about that, but I'll give it a go. And did that for a little while and then said 
decided, well, actually, kind of, I like the process here. It's difficult, but there's something about it. And I ended up then working with uh, a local company selling door to door in South Carolina, which is uh, <laughs> which is tough, tough all by itself. So they, they probably thought your southern accent was a little unusual. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't try to put it on. I mean, I sounded pretty weird, that's for sure. Um, so but, what were you um, what were you selling? I was selling um, garden furniture. Garden furniture door to door, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah, indeed. So uh, I did that for um, a little while. I decided that I wasn't qu- quite as passionate as I thought I might be about garden furniture, but I still like sales. And so I was headhunted to come back to the UK and work for a publishing company where I got my first kind of taste of actual sales training uh, going through and having an actual process. And once I I got wind that there was actual process to sales where people were using um, this, this process to actually win more business and convince people to buy. And that's where the kind of floodgates just kind of opened for me and, I, and uh, a new world kind of beckoned my attention. Interesting, interesting. And so then I think you got into tech sales then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I kind of did um, – Went from, went from publishing, did online um, there, then moved on to an events company. We, across the events, I sold a whole range of different things, right from um, technology space to um, CEOs at, attending high-level masterminds um, across the world. Um, so 5,000-pound packages, you know, $20,000 mm-hmm. packages and so forth. Um, then from there decided that I, I wanted to work more on myself in terms of personal development. And uh, although there was sales training, um, the sales training was limited to a skill and not to a development of a person. Um, and I'll give some articulation to that. So what I recognized with the sales training I was having, it was, it was built to help me um, say things at the right time when the right phrases were given to me. Sort of like Pavlov's dog. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I, I, it just came to a place where I actually was – I did get some success with it because I was you know, starting out for, you know, learning a new process spin and all kinds of things like that. Um, but then I kind of just hit this plateau and I realized that it was not necessarily my ability to understand the sales process, but it's actually my personal development, my ability to communicate, my ability to manage my psychology, my ability to be able to convince and, and connect with other people, my ability to begin to kind of uh, better understand desire and the mechanisms and triggers around that. And so I decided to work for a, a training and development company, sold management leadership skills training. And I thought that was the next step for me, really diving into the world of personal development. And uh, I was there, was the top salesperson for eight years running, managing key accounts, account managers, and selling you know, millions of dollars of services um, before you know, making a leap into my own entrepreneurial endeavor. And that was how long ago? So I actually left the business um, last year and um, was still consulting them for a little while before launching this business. I was, there for, I was there for seven years. So you had time to write this book, uh, Eight Hacks of Key Account, or the Key Account Hack, Eight Steps to Creating Massive and Predictable Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, I did that over a 10-month period. Very interesting. So why did you write the book? Um, out of curiosity. Um, I, I really just wanted it for myself. Um, I'm not sure if you ever come across this, but you know the, the industry itself in sales, or Key Account Manager specifically, for 30 years has, has done very, very similar things. And I can speak with people who were you know, 15, 20 years into Key Account Management, and they seem to still face the same types of challenges and problems and struggle with them, and I was fascinated by that. Um, but there were some other people who were really doing uh, some really successful things and, and overcoming those things very, very easily. And 
you know, were topping their game. And so I decided that I wanted to um, sit down and speak to some of those people and find out who these people were. So I ended up interviewing about 150 people mm-hmm. um, over a 10-month period and documenting some of these ideas and commonalities that I saw and then um, almost kind of distilled them into eight principles or kind of systems of thinking that you might um, consider when managing the growth and relationships of your key customers. And so I started to apply those things um, for the business I was working with, um, teaching some of their account managers, and they found a lot of success in that. And uh, I, yeah, I instantly kind of fell in love with the principles and decided to, to test them out and find out if other people would resonate with it. And uh, now I've been able to work like, with companies like Gartner and um, Roche Pharmaceuticals, and uh, that's been a, a really uh, interesting journey. Very interesting. So, is the book really designed for, uh, you know, sort of classic account managers as opposed to what we see now in the SaaS business and other, uh, you know, sort of tech businesses where there's the customer success function that sort of takes over once the deal is signed? Or is it for both? What's interesting because uh, I mean, if I look at my the people who sign up to my mailing list, I actually have a, a small percentage of those people who are customer success professionals. But it's it's predominantly for the key account manager and the evolution of that role. I mean, it's essentially, key account managers are a, an account manager and customer success manager built in together, uh, along with giving the authority of, of you know some sort of leadership capacity as well. They're having to lead change in a very dynamic and very strategic way. They're having to really kind of look at the customer's journey and the lifetime values of those customers in a really specific way. They have, a, they have quite a unique role in today's industry. Uh, and I wanted to really reflect that inside the book as best as possible. So, yeah, but we're seeing that. And the, just to follow up on that last question that I asked you, is we're seeing a lot of evolution, though, in that role. I mean, in certain companies, like in Silicon Valley, this customer success function, which is account management, a classic account management, key account management, oftentimes doesn't even report to sales. I mean, it's, no, it's, it's, no, it's, it's driving, yeah. it's driving, Jen, and driving a, a majority of the revenue in many companies, and it doesn't report to sales. It's it's the strangest thing for me. Um, I had a, t- a particular incident working with a Dutch company recently who um, were completely disconnected. So, for example, they didn't have say have a customer success function, but they did have a VP of I guess customer VP of customer um, satisfaction, and the keycap managers reported to the customer satisfaction VP. And um, we, had, we ended up sitting down and having a conversation. And the first question I asked was um, to, the, to the VP. I said, what's your number one priority for these key account managers? And his metric is customer growth and retention. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's that's great because retention is great, and we can actually we can actually marry the kind of the, the revenue generation based on retention. But actually, the function of a key account manager is to see growth. Um, uh, you know, it's cyclical kind of annually. So if if that's not a metric you measure, then who does? Um, with 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 the the role of the key account manager. And the reality was that a lot of companies are just confused about um, one the companies to serve. To, to, to start with, to the actual function of a key account manager, and then the three, who, who they report to and what collaboration looks like across departments. And that's what kills a lot of businesses is because they end up resourcing or over-resourcing customers that aren't the right fit. Um, they put the key account managers if in the wrong places with the resources that, um, that are less than adequate to help them fulfill their role. And, and literally, managers are just confused in knowing what to do in order to see success in a really um, consistent way. Yeah, well, I think the, the trend in general in sales, 
independent of what's happening with the sales development model and inside sales is is toward increased specialization and um yeah i think one of the things that that uh you know people start struggling with is 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 dual roles of retention and revenue growth and so on is is are those really compatible yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a real question to ask. I'm not sure if anybody's necessarily tackling this in a really pragmatic way. I think one one of the things that I'm definitely trying to do, and this will be something that um, people will see um, very very soon, is uh, running a, a two day summit based on this whole principle of this of the customer relationship being the strategic advantage, but having it um, based on a results and revenue generating perspective. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, um, one of the things I, I believe 100% in this new uh, economy or in the economy, economy that we're in is that, you know, there, is, there comes a point in which your product is no longer the differentiator. Um, you can innovate as much as you want. Your, your competitors will probably innovate just as fast as you. But the question that remains is when your customer sees you and your competitor together and the differentiation between you is only marginal. What is the next def- def- defining factor that they will use to choose you first? Well, it's going to be your relationship. And so, if you understand that actually relationship is a strategy, uh, it's a, a strategic and revenue generating differentiator, um, then you'll begin to see the way you sell differently and than other people. And you'll value the way in which you are positioning yourself and building in relationships as part of a sales process. Right. So in your book, you talk about three levels of engagement with customers. Yes. Strategic, tactical relationship. And you're saying that the strategic gets too much focus. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's so kind of up in the clouds that they kind of – so if I could take a step back. So the strategic um, engagement is really about the – the marrying of what our needs are as a business towards what do we think our customer needs or what do we know from what they've said. But the, 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 key, the key thing here is that um, when you move to the um, relational engagement, tactical engagement, the, the, the differentiator or the thing that, that matters most once you have the strategy is execution. But execution without relationship is simply transaction. And so it's important that a business really considers once they have strategy that they have tactical engagement and relationship engagement uh, as a strategy so that they're marrying the growth and revenue along with strengths and consistency of relationships that they form within the business. So what is tactical engagement? So tactical engagement are the things that you intentionally do on a day-to-day or weekly basis that moves you towards your goal and delivers value to your customer. Okay. So, uh, for for example, if my strategy is to increase my margin with this particular customer by you know, 10%, what does that mean for me on a, on a daily, monthly basis? Well, it may just mean that I need to look at the cost model that I have with this particular customer and start conversations with finance or, or procurement department over a six-month period. And that may mean I need to schedule in calls on a weekly basis with the you know, VPO, Global Procurement Manager. That is, a, that is a tactical implication of that strategy of, of delivering on that marginal result that I want. But alongside that, because I'm having to connect with a person, I also have a relationship-based strategy, which is how do I amplify trust? How do I build better connection? How do I deepen influence? And how do I do those things to make the transition or the, t- the tactical engagement of what I'm doing really effective to meeting that strategy? 
Well, but it seems like the tactical really is one of the keys to the relational. So, I mean, to me, is you know, relational engagement with customers is not about, hey, let's go play golf. It's about what have you done for me recently. Yes, I'd, I'd agree that you know, relational engagement is is not about take, taking them out for lunch. So I'll definitely give a definition to that. So when I say tactical, ta- tactical engagement is the vehicle in which your communication happens, or it is the the lens in which you decide to engage with your customers, or the way in which you decide to engage with your customers. And so the relational strategy is 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 this. So once I understand where I want to go and what I need to do. The next question asks is who do I need to know and what does that look like? What does that what does it look like today? So what does that relationship look like today? What does it need to look like and where do I want it to go? So what is my what is my goal for this particular relationship? And what tends to happen is if you walk into a sales meeting, a sales manager um, with a team will never ask the question, where is your relationship like now with that particular customer? Because relationships aren't a metric inside of sales. It's, it's assumed, but it's never asked. Right. Well, that's, a great, so, that's a great point. It's assumed, which yeah, I think assumed. is the death, exactly. of, death of many, many companies. Yeah, exactly. So, so my advocation is simply to, to, to put, sales, put relationships as a metric inside your, your sales conversations. And you'll begin to see that you begin to transform the way people think about their daily activity and about how they, they uh, produce growth and do growth with their customers. Well, I think the other thing that's that's key with the relational, and you sort of alluded to it, is that you know, if there's this group of people that that some unknown number of people, five to twenty people say that influence the purchase decision, there's a tendency for account managers to think that those are the people they need to know once mm. they're into the account, which is really not the case often. You know, the decision makers are a lot of times not the not the implementers, and the implementers are the ones going to be more driving further purchase decisions or further expansion of business within that account. So, to your mm-hmm. point is is people really have to be focused on when you just said uh, trigger. You said you know they have to know who they need to know. Yeah, they got to map out the account, and that account map is going to look different than it had for the account exec when they're trying to get the deal in the first place. Oh, 100%. And that's where the complexity is. So uh, a lot of the big challenges that key account managers have is, is, is influence. It's stakeholder. It's, it's, it's managing those stakeholders. It's, it's getting deep, deep enough inside a business that they can begin to influence the way decisions are made and, and if decisions are made with them rather than before them. And that's what a key account manager really wants to get into. He wants to get into a position where he's helping to influence decisions within that company rather than being a byproduct of having to wait for a decision. Yeah, so you later on in the book, you refer to the ability to make power connections. And that's really what you're talking about there is, is yeah. find out who is, who is uh, important to your contact. Um, absolutely, one hundred percent. So, uh, and it's and it's not really considered. So we often think about we often ask the question. I guess with a a potential quote unquote decision maker, you know, who else might be part of this decision? Well, that's actually a helpful question, but it's not the best question you could possibly ask. Um, I, I find if you ask the question and you've done it, do it in some sensitivity. Who's most important to you in this business, or who's most influential? Who do you think most? Who, who do I need to speak to? Who's very influential in this decision process? 
um, then you get a very different answer. Now it has to be done in rapport because it can be, it could be taken as something quite as quite defensive. Obviously, if you're speaking to somebody who's potentially in a senior role or decision-making position, but in rapport, that question can be really powerful because it does give you a different answer. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to identify sort of sources and and pathways of influence, right? Is is who does your contact influence and who influences them, and what's important to them on both ends of that. Yeah, absolutely. Because the 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 reality is is that you can have two people making one decision, but having very very different agendas, and and we we know this in our own experience. And so the 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 more you can understand the needs and desires of each party, then the the more effective you will be as an influencer and as somebody who can marry the two ideas together. So you want to find the commonalities between the multiple stakeholders that's there. So for example, if if you know as as a strategic objective a company is trying to get to X place, then the implications of that particular corporate strategy will impact different people in different ways. And therefore, when you're coming with your solution, you have to consider the implications of each department will be different and their needs will be different as part of that. And I don't think account managers really think of that in that type of transformative way where they, they carry a solution and just think they can just cookie cutter box those things into different departments and it's just not going to work. Right, exactly. Well, that, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, account managers oftentimes operate with this assumption that since the customer purchased their product or service, whatever, that Yes, their assumption is that, well, of course they're going to expand the use of this. Of course, right? They're going to go beyond what their initial requirements were. Of course, because we're there. We're, the, we're this incumbent. And they don't think about the fact that it's a brand new sale that they have to make at each of those internal stakeholders that potentially could be internal users. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's an interesting one. It's um, that's well, why I mean, account we, management, I think, is a misnomer, right? I mean, I, I, like, <laughs> I like customer success is. better because if you make your core customers successful and they derive the value from from the investment that they made, then you know, that is a compelling case study for other people then within the organization to also use the product or service. But account management, you know, historically is a very has a very passive <laughs> passive uh, connotation to it. Yeah, it does. I don't think they get a, a good rep. You know, they're kind of order takers, as the, the the BDs would say. You know, uh, <laughs> the people doing the real groundwork are the people winning new business, and the account managers don't really get the same level of uh, of, of cadence or kind of allure um, to its to its role in terms of respect um, because of that. But I, I still see. Well, I do see them because I, I'm in that space. Uh, I, I believe that there definitely is a bit of a misnomer around the, the name. Uh, I'm not sure what, it, what, what that name would look like specifically. I think it will change over the next few years. I don't think it will be. I don't think we'll see key account management in the same way or account management. I see that changing through conversations I'm having. Um, but the big, the interesting thing for me, I think, is is the way that um, companies now need to really think about how they manage their relationships based on the way technology is today and uh, technology has placed a kind of real emphasis on on the the mechanisms in which you can begin to deliver value and and build customer relationships and the salesforce really hasn't got that yet i think bd's from a business development perspective i think there's a lot of content out there in regards to 
you know, acquisition of customers and engaging them on social media and quote unquote social selling. That's another topic. But for account managers, key account managers, this, there's this real kind of void there, which is, you know, what do we do with accounts that we have and engaging them best through technology along with the processes that we have that are in some cases quite archaic? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I, no, I, <laughs> I absolutely get that. Um, so I was going to, I was sort of distracted to think about another point, which you had, you had brought before about value. And, you know, this is sort of a, I don't know, amorphous term is, you know, we talk about value, you talk about creating value that matters. And I think one of, you know, one of the things that we see that, that makes account management more challenging these days is that, that, you know, the technology really enables the customers to see through the data, through big data, what value they actually are driving, right? They can be much more concrete about the value they're getting from a you know solution or a product that they they purchased. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, how does an account manager create value? Right. So yeah, there's val- the yeah. value, the value coming from the product, but how does the account manager create value? Well, it's, I mean, that's a fascinating one for me. Uh, so I, I wrote a particular blog um, uh, today just around value, and I think there is a differentiation in terms of. Um, what value is, and I think it can be confusing to many people. So uh, I define value in in two parts. So you're adding value and creating value. So adding value is what you do with your information, with your resources, with your capacity, with your technology, with your solutions. It's what you're adding to the customer to help them solve a problem. But creating value is about the information you have about the customers. The insight you gain is about understanding their world, understanding their resources, their particular capabilities and infrastructure and using that to inform how you might have different conversations later. And so what an account manager needs to decide is what kind of information or what kind of value do they want to produce. So the value value adding is value that a customer can use today, but value creation is insight that generates conversation and opportunity for tomorrow. And so how an account manager or a key account manager begins to deliver value is by understanding, first of all, what is their goal through delivering value? What is their goal? And then deciding then from what that goal, what needs to happen for the customer that's contextual, that's relevant, that's personalized, um, that is most effective for them today and helps them move the account forward tomorrow. Okay, good. Good answer. All right. So, uh, Harry, the last thing from the show is... Um, got some standard questions to ask all my guests. And the first one is a hypothetical scenario. And you, Jermaine, have just been hired as vice president of sales or a sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. They got stuck. And the CEO, the board are really anxious for you to turn things around quickly. So what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? The first thing is I'd go around and be speaking with collaborative departments that have any type of touch contact with customers that we we work with. And I'd begin to create really kind of a framework for how we deliver value together as a business, not just through sales, but through um, all of the connected departments that work with the customers that we work with. That'd be the first thing I start to do, start to create that, those conversations. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I'd then do is, is then go out and actually uh, 
literally speak with each customer. That way, I literally get out on the field with every sales rep that I could possibly do to really understand the the nature of of where these customers are, how they feel, what they think, um, and survey that and get some honest answers, and then come back and then and, and think about the best strategies to go and deploy to meet those particular needs and the, to create more desire for our products and services. Okay, good answer. Good answer. Almost sounds like you practice that. So. The, now some standard questions are fast, sir. Fast moving, rapid fire questions. I ask all my guests, and the first one is: When you personally, Jermaine, are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? I see now it's over, over time. It's been my uh, ability to ask questions, mm-hmm. and so I've built a repository of questions that I I hold internally, but it's. Uh, it's always always based on the context and the place where the customer is. And so I think questions is definitely one of the most powerful traits for me now. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Um, I'd, I'd say sales role model has to be Jim Rowan uh, because he was the first mentor that I never met. Okay. Okay. So what's one book every salesperson should read besides your own? <laughs> Uh, indeed. Um, what does it have to be? Does any book? Um, it can be any book. Doesn't need to be a sales yeah, book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, then I'd, I'd definitely say um, Stuart Diamond's um, um, "Getting More," which is a book on negotiation, but it's also a book on just people and people behavior and psychology. And I think it's a great book for uh, um, being able to frame conversations and understand how to do negotiation and selling better. Okay, great. Yeah, first time I think someone suggested that one. Okay. And lastly, what music's on your playlist these days? Um, actually, soundtracks. I was listening to the Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack um, just the other day. So I think uh, I've been Mo- into kind so of more movie, movie soundtracks. Movie soundtracks, yeah. Movie soundtracks is right now. No, very interesting. How'd you get into that? Uh, I think of, I mean, I, I grew up playing the cello. And so I've always been interested in the orchestral music and just happens to be in a lot of soundtracks. And are you dancing while you're listening to it? Oh my gosh, I wish I could. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> not enough space to do it, play cello and, and dance at the same time. That's true. Oh, very good. Well, Jermaine, it's, as always, been fun to talk with you. So tell people how they can find out more about you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, connect with me on LinkedIn, Jermaine Edwards. Uh, on Twitter, it's JSA Edwards. And you can find me at www.jermaineedwards.com. Subscribe to my list and get to know my content and who I am. Excellent. Yeah, I recommend people do that. So remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen in on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Jermaine Edwards, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. 
With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.